Okay, in terms of announcements, the most significant is, and y'all need to be in prayer for this, and that is that um, well, we're going to be having a Good News Club in the fall, some local school in the Spring Branch School District. And so uh, if you're interested, you need to make sure you talk to uh, uh, Mark Friedrich, and we'll be having some more information about this coming out very soon. But you need to also be in prayer for... The, this outreach that so we get in the right, right good school, that we have uh, teachers and, and assistants and helpers that can uh, um, fulfill their responsibilities, and and it's a great opportunity for for uh, ministry. So uh, keep that in your prayers. The other thing in the similar vein is that we need volunteers to help out in prep school, and also if you're interested, contact uh, Mark Friedrich. And then, as I announced on Sunday, this last uh, Thursday, um, Nancy Richards went to be with the Lord, and the, her memorial service will be this coming Saturday afternoon here at West Houston Bible Church at 1 p.m. I don't think there are any other, the only other announcement is to uh, get the things together for Jim Myers, uh, Jim Myers Ministry. Uh, coming up. So I think that covers all of the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus and concentrate and study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so very grateful that uh, we have the heritage that we do in this nation, a heritage of freedom, heritage emphasizing personal responsibility, a heritage built upon truths of your word, eternal truths that are never changing. Father, we pray for our nation as we continue to rapidly slide into the morass of uh, relativism and uh, atheism and secularism, we pray that there would be uh, men who would rise up, who would be faithful teachers of your word, who would proclaim the truth. We pray that there would be responsive ears, responsive audiences. And as we think about what goes on in our world, we realize that, that the culture that we are uh, rubbing shoulders with on a day-to-day basis isn't that much different from the culture that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles uh, interacted with in the ancient world, and that it's not based upon our intelligence, it's not based upon our skill, it's not based upon our ability to strategize, to convince people the truth of your word. It is based upon God the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that we should not be uh, thinking about how we express ourselves in giving the gospel, that we might do our very best to answer questions and present the truth. Father, as we study this passage uh, this week and in the coming weeks, 
We pray that you might challenge each of us in our own areas, that we might be pressed by God the Holy Spirit to come to a better understanding of developing our, our skills at witnessing to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we're coming to uh, one of the most significant passages, I think, in not only the New Testament, not only Acts, but also in the New Testament. It's Acts 17, 16 through 31. In the previous lesson, which was uh, which I taught before I went to uh, uh, Camparete and on vacation, uh, we looked at Paul's trip to Thessalonica as well as to uh, Beria. Now we're in Athens, and this is one of three passages in Acts where the Apostle Paul's message is recorded. There's one here in Acts 17, Acts 13, in Antioch, and there's one uh, coming up in a couple of chapters in Acts chapter 20 as he addresses the uh, Ephesian uh, pastors. And it is in these three different uh, messages of the Apostle Paul that we get a glimpse of of the core of his message, and there's a different audience each time. It's important to pay attention to that, uh, the different audience. One of the great axioms of military uh, strategy is to know your enemy. While the person that we're witnessing to isn't quite an enemy, it is somebody that we need to understand if we are going to clearly articulate the gospel. The Apostle Paul doesn't have a canned approach. He doesn't go after each audience the same way because people come from different backgrounds. People have different education levels. People are on different, um, different, are different locations along the path, you might say, to coming to faith in Christ. There are some who've never heard anything about Christianity. There are others who have heard quite a bit about Christianity, and almost all you have to do is breathe hard, and they'll fall over in faith in Christ because they've heard the gospel, they've been maybe raised in a church where the terminology is not unfamiliar with them, but they've never quite reached a point where they realized that they personally needed to uh, believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Uh, we never know who or where people are, so we need to be engaged with in asking them questions and finding out uh, their backgrounds and where they're they're coming from. In Acts chapter thirteen, verses verse fifteen through forty one, we studied this extensively as Paul addressed the Jews in the synagogue at Antioch, uh, at Pisidian Antioch. And it was interesting to see how he used what they knew in order to present the gospel. So he had a firm understanding. These are really just kind of snapshots of these messages. If you read those 27 verses, it won't take you more than just a couple of minutes. But his presentation was probably much, much longer than that. And under the editorial guidance of God the Holy Spirit in... um, and under inspiration, Luke 
presented what the Apostle Paul said in sort of a Reader's Digest abbreviated version. version. So we got exactly what the Apostle Paul said. We didn't get everything the Apostle Paul said. And this is how many of the discourses in Scripture are handled. They're not summaries. They are simply divine, uh, divinely edited uh, snapshots of what was said. Not every word given uh, that the person spoke at the time is set, is given or recorded in Scripture, but every word that's recorded in Scripture, they said. Okay, it's not a, just a summary. Some people try to make these summations. In some cases, they are summaries, but in situations like this or contexts like this, we get the exact words that they spoke, even if we don't get every word. Uh, that that was spoken. So Paul has an address. He has an assumption that he makes in Acts thirteen fifteen to forty one, and that is that his audience is made up of Jews who understand and believe the Torah, and Gentile God fearers. So he doesn't need to define certain terms for them when he talks about God. They have a shared commonality in the meaning of that particular word. They know that they're both speaking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not talking about Zeus or Hermes or any of the other gods or goddesses in the various uh, Greek or Roman or Anatolian uh, pantheons. So there was a commonality there. His starting point is with the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy related to the Messiah. But when we come to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 31, we have a completely different audience. Now we have an audience made up of the intelligentsia in the uh, Greek world in Athens, which is the foremost uh, university town, or one of three actually in the ancient world. There was uh, Rome, there was uh, Athens, and there's Alexandria. Uh, there, these were the foremost areas where people would go for an, uh, an advanced education. Now, Athens is known because of its history going back to 5th century B.C. for uh, intellectual development under the, um, under the philosophers, going back to the pre-Socratic philosophers and then Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all the way up to uh, the present philosophies that were popular, Epicureans and uh, the Stoics, which are mentioned in this particular passage. So when Paul talks to them, he doesn't assume that they understand and have as a common foundation the truths that are in Acts, I mean, excuse me, in Genesis 1 through 11. He's not going to take that for granted. He's got to define his terms. And we're going to see that, that what he, as he tries to communicate the gospel to these uh, pagans in Athens, that when he mentions Jesus and resurrection, they think he's talking about, uh, they're not even sure what he's talking about. They immediately redefine his terms and think he's talking about two new gods that they can put into their pantheon. And it just is a great example of how 
the unbelieving mind is going to take what we say in, in certain evangelistic uh, situations and completely twist and distort what we're saying simply because they've been in this situation of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness for so long that there, no communication can take place. So we have to work down to basics. Now, as I've taught many times before when I've taught about evangelism, that doesn't apply to everybody. But I find, and it's discouraging for me to discover this as a pastor, that there are some people who think that every person needs to get the same basic four points and they'll, they've heard the gospel. It's what I call drive-by evangelism. I yelled, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Therefore, I did my evangelistic duty. I had no conversation with them. I don't know if they understand anything that I said, but I witnessed to them because I just threw the gospel at them. And that is just absolutely absurd and worthless. Uh, God, of course, God can use anything, but when we look at the scriptures and we look at any any of the examples we have of a believer communicating to an unbeliever, there's a lot more going on than just simply uh, citing a pat formula and then moving on down the road. Uh, there's conversation. Uh, there's conversation with those who, and they end up in condemnation sometimes for those who reject what has been taught. And then there's ongoing conversation and follow-up with those who have heard the truth and have responded uh, to the truth. So as we get into Acts, Acts 17, we need to take some time to see how the Apostle Paul is handling these skeptics, these rationalists, these philosophers, these uh, uh, self-defined intelligentsia. We are in Athens and according to this map, this is over here in this uh, light green area, uh, south of Macedonia. Macedonia is the yellow area, the area to which the Apostle Paul first went with the gospel. On his second missionary journey, he was directed by the Holy Spirit to Troas. Then in a vision, he saw a man, this is just a symbolic representation, uh, asking him to come over uh, to uh, Macedonia. And so he uh, and Timothy and Silas and Luke get on a ship and they go to uh, past Samothrace over to the harbor of Neapolis and then first to Philippi. Then they go th travel through Am Amphipolis and Apollonia on their way to Thessalonica. Now we're not told if they did anything, said anything, taught anything in Amphipolis or Apollonia. Uh, we have just a short summary in Acts 17, 1 through 9 of what took place in Thessalonica. Again, Paul has to leave town in a hurry. Uh, he was arrested, put in jail in uh, Philippi. Then he is uh, again uh, faces a lot of opposition in Thessalonica and has to leave town in a hurry. And so he goes with Silas. Uh, down to uh, uh, Berea or Veria as it's pronounced in Greek. And there we're told that the, those in uh, Berea were more noble or more objective than those in Thessalonica. They have a measure of humility. And these are Jewish uh, uh, individuals who are familiar with the Torah, so they go and check out the Scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul is teaching them is true. Uh, 
I've known some pastors that if somebody asked them a question, they would get irritated because it would just assume that, that and this is usually young pastors, uh, who they would just assume that they would, um, let me get back to whatever was going on there, I don't know. There we go. They would just uh, assume that I'm the pastor, therefore you ought to trust me. That is really not a very mature attitude. Uh, we need to look look at the scriptures. I f- often find that when people ask me questions, I discover that either A, I haven't communicated very well, or B, I have communicated very well, and people are wanting a, to put things together in their own thinking. And so as, as I've taught, they've said, well, what about this and what about that? So many times the questions that people ask uh, give you the opportunity to uh, explain the scriptures a little differently, a little more clearly. Sometimes when you're a teacher, you think you've been just so simple and crystal clear, and then you hear people repeat what you've said, and you wonder what they were listening to. Uh, how many times that has happened over the years where I've heard Christians say, well, the Bible teaches X, Y, and Z, and you go, I know your pastor, I know what he teaches, and he never taught anything like that. So where are you coming up with these crazy ideas? Uh, so questions are really good and help you help a teacher communicate and make sure he's communicated clearly. So there's great praise in the Scripture for people who are going home, studying the Word for themselves, checking things out. You know, back in a day when we had a, a trained, intelligent, educated congregation, uh, because they came out of a culture that prized the Word of God, and everybody was taught Greek and Latin at least in ele- from elementary school on, most congregations had at least um, three or four, depending on the size of the congregation, or 20 or 30 men in the congregation who would sit there with their Greek Testament in their lap and follow along as the pastor taught so that the pastor couldn't uh, uh, you know, blow any smoke at anybody about what the Word of God taught because they knew the, the Greek and Hebrew just as well as the pastor did. So Athens is located down here outside of Macedonia. Paul had to leave uh, Berea. He uh, goes on down to leave Silas and Timothy behind and went down to Athens. Here's another map showing a slightly different uh, format. This is more of a topographical map showing the location of Athens uh, down here on uh, uh, the Achaean Peninsula. This is the Peloponnesian Peninsula uh, Sparta was located down here on the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula. So as we look at this passage, what we're going to examine is Paul's address to the uh, council of the Areopagus, which is one of the sort of an oversight council in Athens where he is going to explain to them what it is that he is teaching about this address uh, uh Great uh, scholar, New Testament Greek scholar by the name of Adolf Deisman stated uh, back at the turn of the last century that the, this is the greatest missionary document in the New Testament. 
I have taught through this passage several times, and every time I finish with it, I'm always frustrated because I always feel like there's so much more that can be taken out of this particular passage. It's such a a, a great example of so many different things that go on, and especially today. So one of the things that I want to do, and just to uh, explain this to you a little better as we get into Acts uh, 17, 16, and following, is I want to follow basic procedure of uh, what is called just basic Bible study methods. One of the things that uh, I enjoyed doing when I was teaching at Camp Arete was connecting what I was teaching in the morning with what Pastor David Roseland was doing each night. Uh, David and I had prepared this so we could tag team, as it were. David was teaching some very basic principles of Bible study methods to the uh, to the kids that were there, and he had chosen Galatians five sixteen to twenty five as a basic passage that he would use to communicate principles uh, for Bible study methods, and that was a sort of the anchor passage that I was using for teaching spiritual life. And that way, we were coming at those passages from two different directions. What we were saying was the same thing, complementing each other in the way in which we taught things. And so the kids were getting this from a number of different uh, perspectives. And Bible study methods is something that's also very important. In a lot of ways, Bible study methods, the idea of Bible study methods is uh, nothing more than learning how to read your Bible a little more intelligently and just learning how to read a little more intelligently. There are a lot of people today have problems just with basic reading skills, and that can be due to a number of different things. But in Bible study methods, and I'm thinking about uh, having a Sunday night class on Bible study methods starting sometime probably not until October. And one of the things that I've done over the past, I've taught this with pastors. I use uh, computer programs like Logos, which I will continue to use because I think it allows uh, a a teacher to put the information up on the screen so people can see it and use it, and it just reinforces uh, what is being done. But nothing replaces putting a book in your hand. Uh, having that uh, print book on several tools, I, and I'm, I'm hearing this now in diff- from different venues where people are realizing that in a lot of ways it's better to go back to more uh, traditional ways of learning something before you get into the technology. And that way people learn an un- to understand the mechanics of many things uh, rather than relying upon a computer. And this has application in areas from science to math to even uh, liberal arts and Bible study. And I, as I've watched a lot of guys over the years who have come up in a computer age, they if you open up, for example, a program like Lagos Bible Software, which is an excellent program, or Accordance, which is a... Uh, software program that uh, you have uh, available for Macintosh or Bible Works or some of these others, you don't learn to appreciate the difference in the in the different books. 
Uh, for example, you, you pull up Greek lexicons. You may have 15 different kinds of Greek lexicons in your, in your computer. They all look the same. And you have, and, and the print looks there, and there's a title bar at the top that tells you that this is, uh, uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you've sweated and you've worked an extra eight or ten hours a week to buy a 12-volume work that's been translated into English from the German, uh, originally edited by, uh, by Kittle, a German work, then you, you, you have that visual aid, and you buy another book, and it's one volume. You know, well, let me see, one volume versus ten volumes, one of which has more detailed information. Uh, so you have those kinds of visual reinforcements. You also discover things as you grow in your knowledge of the word that all of those people who wrote the different entries in Kittle's Theological uh, Dictionary of the New Testament came that, that the, the writers or scholars came from different backgrounds. Uh, some of them were very liberal, like Rudolf Bultmann, a name not well known outside of uh, theological academic circles, but he had uh, extremely liberal views. And yet I've heard people who don't know that when you read an entry in something like that, you go to the end, it'll give you the initials or identification of the person who wrote it, then you go to the front of the book, and you look in the um, <clears throat> list of contributors, and it tells you a little bit about them. And then you, now today with the Internet, you can look them up, and you can find out different things about what they believe. But I've seen people who quote from Kittle, which is a theological dictionary. That means it's, it's not a lexicon. It's somebody's theological interpretation of the words that are there. And I've seen people quote from it as if it has the same value as a straight lexicon like Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich. You have to learn these these different things and these different tools. And a lot of what you learn as a pastor in, and, and as a, in anybody in Bible study methods is to learn tools. This is one of the things I think that is often missed <clears throat> today in seminary education as we're shifting to online education. One of my little pet peeves is that so many young men come along, and one of the first questions you hear from somebody who thinks they have the gift of pastor teacher is, well, can I study this online? Would you say that if you were pursuing a law degree? Would you say that if you were pursuing a goal of being a surgeon? Uh, would you say, well, I want to get licensed as a plumber, but I don't want to go down and ever have to pick up a wrench or deal with a pipe or crawl under somebody's house in wet muck. Uh, I just want to get online and get my certification as a plumber. No, you would never say anything like that, but people think that they can be a, become a pastor just by sitting at home, looking at their computer, having a good program, and they can somehow figure it all out. There are a lot of things that can be learned. There are a lot of benefits to the technology that we have, but there are uh, limitations and there are restrictions uh, to what, what we have today. And so uh, if we do a Bible study methods class, I'm going to uh, require everybody to buy four or five basic books, concordances, vines, expository dictionary, just some basic tools, handbooks, Bible dictionaries, things like that. 
which once you understand these things, they become a great source of, of aid for anyone who wants to know the Bible better. And that you don't have to have the gift of pastor teacher in order to do that. Uh, one of the things that has appalled me over the years is I hear somebody say, well, you have the gift of pastor teacher. Can't you just open the Bible and it just comes to you? Uh, you, we laugh, but there are a lot of intelligent Christians that you know, because I know them too, who believe that, that the gift of pastor teacher is a, it's a study gift. No, the gift of pastor teacher is a leadership and a communication gift. It's not a study gift. You have to learn how to study so that you can take out from what the word of God says, but the word, but the Holy Spirit enables us to communicate the word. It's a communication gift, just like the gift of evangelism is a communication gift. But a person who's an evangelist has to learn how to present the gospel. They have to learn what the gospel is. And uh, Gene will tell you, Gene's sitting back on the back row, Gene will tell you that there's a lot of evangelists out there who don't have a clue what the content of the gospel is. So, so the gift of pastor-teacher, by analogy, is a gift where you uh, communicate, not a gift where you automatically know something, any more than somebody who has a gift of evangelism automatically knows what the gospel is. And anybody can learn the basics of, of Bible study methods, and it just makes all of us better Bible students. The more people who know in a congregation who know how to study the Bible, the better the pastor is and the better the congregation is. And it just pushes everybody forward. So uh, I'm looking at uh, that in the fall. So to, in, in the next three weeks, as we look at Acts 17, I want to do this a little bit through the grid of Bible study methods. Now, just some opening principles in terms of evangelism, because that's what we're really talking about here is how to present the gospel more effectively. Now, I want to say this right up front. God the Holy Spirit helps make it clear to the individual, but that doesn't give you an excuse to be ignorant, sloppy, and irresponsible in your presentation of the gospel. That is not an excuse for intellectual laziness in the presentation of the gospel. It doesn't give us the, uh, a, a, a basis for saying, well, I'm just going to give them the information and then God the Holy Spirit just going to smack them upside the head with it. That is mysticism and subjectivism, and that goes against everything <clears throat> that the Bible values in terms of communication. We communicate, we are to communicate as clearly and as precisely as we can. So the first principle is, in any kind of evangelism, is you have to know the person you're talking to. You have to know your audience. Just as uh, Sun Tzu said, you have to know the enemy, you have to know your audience. You have to know who you're communicating to, what's their background. That means we have to talk to them. Ask them questions. Find out what they think. Find out what they understand. When you use terms like Jesus, do they understand anything about that term? Or are they like the uh, these philosophers in Athens who immediately want to just put Jesus on the shelf with 50 other gods and goddesses? Do they really understand what that word means? When Paul uses the word resurrection, 
they thought he was speaking about some other god named Anastasis. That's the Greek word for resurrection. So he wasn't communicating to them. So Paul doesn't say, well, I've given you the gospel. The Holy Spirit will make it clear. I'm down the road. He continued to make clear what he was saying so that the communication could take place. So we have to know the people we're talking to. And those of you, many of you who are here, were here back uh, about 10 or uh, 10 years, 9 or 10 years ago when uh, after 30 years of communicating the gospel to a man who was one of my professors in college and was the uh, head of the ROTC department in, at Stephen F. Austin, that he finally came to know the Lord. I talked to him when he was in the hospital here uh, I, after spending about two or three hours talking to him. As I left the, the hospital room, Gene, remember I called Gene on the phone. I said, Gene, you're up next. Uh, and I told him a little bit about Colonel Callahan's background, and uh, we had a, a common acquaintance at that time who had just been killed in um, over in the sandbox over in Iraq, and uh, he had been a, a student at the time I was in college. Uh, Gene had served with him on an A-team. His name was Al Habelman, and um, Al had just died, so that was a point of contact. So Gene went up and spent some time talking with um, uh, with Callahan, and after 30 years, that's a long time. A lot of people don't have the patience for that kind of evangelism. You have to get to know somebody. You have to talk to them, and you have to understand what their issues are, what the questions are that they raise. And sometimes the questions that they raise may sound defensive, may even sound offensive, but that's part of the dynamic that's going on as a person struggling between accepting the truth and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And it was really interesting in that, uh, in communicating the gospel with uh, Callahan at that time, that as he was asking questions about philosophy and history and how do you know the Bible is true, his questions went from sort of a tone where, prove to me this is true to help me understand more fully why it's true. You understand the difference? At some point in there, he believed. And so what he wanted was uh, more affirmation, more ammunition, as it were, to support his new belief system as opposed to sort of coming at it from a critical, cynical view. And Callahan was historically known to be cynical about all religion and all religious motivation. So somehow we we get past that, and that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, as well as what we're doing. So we have to know the person we're talking to. That's the first principle. And the Apostle Paul knew his audience in Athens. He understood their philosophical systems. He understood what the Stoics believed. He understood what the Epicureans believed. And he used that information in his presentation. Now, we don't always know everything that somebody says. We can say, you know, I really don't know anything about that. Let me go home and uh, find out about it, call my pastor, read a book, get on the Internet, whatever, Then, and you continue the conversation. I certainly did not know when I was communicating the gospel to Callahan in 1970 as a freshman in college what I knew in 2004 when I was communicating the gospel to him uh, in, in the hospital. 
but the the core message didn't change but the ability to articulate it to understand his questions and to truly answer the questions he was asking uh, did change uh, along the fact that God the Holy Spirit was working in and through a lot of different circumstances not the least of which being he knew he was close to being on his deathbed that's a tremendous motivator for a lot of people and uh, so he was ready to ready to listen. So we need to know our audience. Second, don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Don't don't try to get in there and straighten them out right away, because a lot of times when we we slow down and we listen to them, we're able to to engage them in a conversation that's that's more significant than when we're just in a hurry uh, to uh, to make our point. A third thing is is don't get in an argument. I've seen people get in arguments with the gospel. I'm going to prove I'm right. I'm going to prove you're wrong. And you, you, you've just gotten totally diverted and distracted from the point. So we don't want to get in. It's not an ego contest. God, the Holy Spirit's at work. He works through us. It's a tremendous privilege we have to be able to be used by God to communicate the gospel to people. And so we just make it as clear as we can, and it's not about us being right. You know you're right. I know you're right. God, the Holy Spirit, knows you're right. Your ego doesn't matter. Neither does mine. And then the fourth principle is don't have or don't use a formulaic gospel presentation. Now, there are a lot of different tracks. Gene uses one that asks a lot of different questions and sort of a quiz type thing. That's all of these are good. There's the four spiritual laws that uh, Campus Crusade for Christ used. There's a uh, Dallas Seminary had a tract out at one point, how to have a happy, meaningful life. Uh, Larry Moyers with Eventel has a fairly decent little free grace tract out that I don't think we have it around here, but it presents the gospel. And and a lot of times as we're developing our ability to communicate the gospel to people, we start with those things because they give us that basic structure. But don't be limited by that because what what is going to uh, be used in, for one person isn't going to be mean anything to somebody else. And so we need to just know the basic facts and have a conversation with people and then present the gospel. Somewhere when we talk to them, we're going to find out, have they never heard anything? Are they just starting at, at ground zero with no information, no knowledge, no content whatsoever about the Bible, Jesus, God, or anything? Or are they just really close to understanding the gospel, but they just have a few basic questions they need a little clarity on, and then boom. They're going to trust in Christ. So we need to figure out things like that. Are they like the Jews that Paul's talking to in Acts 13 that under, understand the biblical terminology? Or are they like um, the Greeks who have no concept of what uh, resurrection or Messiah even describes? And there are a lot more people like that today than, um, than you can imagine. We no longer live in a culture where you can even assume that people in church are biblically literate. Uh, they're not. Uh, very few people read their Bible. Very few people in our culture are even exposed to the Bible anymore. 
And so this, this is a major problem. So we have to make sure that we explain what it is that we're talking about. Now, there are a lot of things that have been written about Paul's address to the Athenians. Just in the last two or three days, I've read a lot of new material, uh, gone through some new commentaries, and one on the one hand, you'll have uh, a commentary of theologians talking about the fact that Paul is using a lot of the things that they believed, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans believed, and he's finding common ground between what he is saying and his view on the gospel, uh, on Christianity, and what they believe. Then on the other hand, you have people who I believe are much more biblically correct that there is no no common ground uh, uh, in that sense between the gospel and what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, the, in case I don't, the common ground is Romans explained in Romans 1. The common ground isn't something that uh, some other aspect. It is that every unbeliever has an internal knowledge of the existence of God. They've reached God consciousness. And according to Romans 1, they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And what we're doing many times in evangelism is we're giving them information that just makes them mad as a hornet because they've been suppressing truth about God for a long time, and then we come along and tweak them with it. That's what's going on in our culture today where there's such a reaction from so many uh, liberals, homosexuals, LGBT types, whatever it is, that, that, and, and, and religious liberals or atheists, uh, whatever. I had a, I've got to explore this a little more, but I had an a interesting conversation on my vacation with a, an older Jewish female lawyer in Taos, New Mexico, who's Buddhist. <laughs> and I always wonder, how is it that somebody can be Jewish and the rest of the Jews are, and, and Buddhist, and the rest of the Jews aren't mad at him, and Buddhism is completely contrary to Judaism, but if you're a Christian, you got to get kicked out. You can be a Jewish Buddhist, but you can't be a Jewish Christian. Where Jewish Christians believe everything that that Judaism holds to, in the sense of, of a belief in the Mosaic authorship of the Old Testament and uh, the God of the Old Testament and the absolutes of Torah and the Ten Commandments, and yet uh, they just believe a little bit more. They believe that a Christian believes that Jesus is the Messiah. You can't be Jewish and believe that, but you can be a Jewish and believe that there's no personal God, that God never spoke to Moses, that not God never appeared on Mount Sinai, and you can believe that there's no God whatsoever. You can believe that there's no such thing as creation. You can believe all this kind of stuff that is 180 degrees contradictory to the, to the Torah, and you can still be Jewish unless you believe Jesus is the Messiah. Then you can't be Jewish anymore. It's, see, it's not logical. One of the first things we have to understand when we're witnessing to people is the problem isn't logic. Don't get caught in that logic trap of thinking that the issue's logic or the issue's information. It's not. It is an issue of spiritual authority with God. That's why it, it really doesn't depend on us 
to have, as I go through this in the next couple of weeks, I want you to remember this, it doesn't, it will sound at times like I'm trying to say that you have to be very intelligent in order to give the gospel to people. You have to be a strategist. In some sense, yes, but but we all make mistakes. I, I, I make mistakes. Anyway, I was having a conversation with this lady because she had a Pyrenees dog that was ill, and I love dogs, and I hate ill dogs, and this Pyrenees was white and huge, absolutely enormous. She brought him into the restaurant. He's got bone cancer and um, had been in the uh, vet clinic for a while. And I went out and just was uh, petting the dog on my way out, and somehow, I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden I'm finding out that she's a Buddhist and I was a pastor and she had a friend that's an evangelical and we argue about these things all the time. And that wasn't exactly the appropriate time to get involved in a discussion, but I did get her business card and we'll be engaging in a conversation via email. But that's, um, those are the way op- things like that come up. And so, you have to find out what their background is, what they mean by things, the way they understand things. And she said, oh, you know, evangelicals just make me so mad because they're, they're trying to impose their morality on everybody. And I said, no, that's not true. I don't know a single person in the entire fundamentalist movement that's trying to impose their whole belief system on anybody else. They just want the, the government and the law to recognize that they have the freedom to believe what they believe and that they're not going to be pushed out and marginalized, which is what the goal of people who are not Christians is. They just don't want Christians to even have a voice in the marketplace then Christians just want to have that voice. They're the ones, uh, often hear people say, well, Christians just want to tell everybody at the table what to do. And I, and I remind them, I said, well, you have to understand that if we're talking about the country and the table is metaphor for the country, the Christians built the table. And then back in the 30s and 40s, they got kicked out of the room and they just want to come back and sit at the table and have a voice again. And that's not meaning that uh, everybody else has to agree with them or go along with them. They just want a voice at the table that they built. And everybody else is benefiting from sitting at that table. The trouble is because they don't know how it was constructed, the table needs repair and it's falling apart and they don't have a clue how to fix it because it can only be fixed with a biblical, biblical knowledge. Okay. So what I want to do is approach this from a uh, Bible study methods approach, and that means we have to look at it in four different ways. These are the four key elements in the development of, of any kind of Bible study. First of all, observation. That's the first issue is observation. We have to ask, what does the text say? What does the passage actually say? Uh, not what do we want it to say, what do we want to use it to say, but what does the passage actually say? That's observation. The second is interpretation. Interpretation answers the question, what does it mean? That's the short version. What does it mean? In other words, what did the original author or authors, because it's a human author and a divine author, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience not what is being not not what does this mean to me what is being communicated to me but what did the original writer in this case it's luke 
What was Luke intending to communicate to Theophilus? What was he getting across to him? What did he want Theophilus to understand? Once we accurately comprehend that, then we can ask the the next question, which is in order to uh, complete that interpretation. So, well, how does that fit with other parts of Scripture? This is called correlation, where we're comparing Scripture with Scripture. Some call it the principle of the analogy of Scripture, and that is comparing Scripture with Scripture. And then the last is application, which is, what does it mean to me? Now, anybody who's studied the Bible very much knows that the more time you spend in, in observation, and the more time, the less time you have to spend in interpretation, correlation, and application. But so many people just fly right past observation. They don't take enough time to say, what does the text say? That they immediately jump within five minutes to, what does it mean? What am I supposed to do? And they don't even understand what the passage says to begin with. So the more time we spend at the beginning, the less time you have to spend on application because by the time you get there, it's just really obvious what you're supposed to do. So we're going to start off and look at this in terms of what does the passage say? What's happening in this particular uh, uh, episode as Paul comes into uh, comes into Athens? First of all, I want to give you a little bit of an overview just so we can structure uh, this passage, this section. Uh, there are uh, six different sections here. The first is in 17, 16 to 21, and I'm just going to take the time to read it so we all understand the, the uh, whole episode. This occurred in March of 51 A.D. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. See, they thought, hmm, this Jesus and resurrection are two foreign deities. And they took him, verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all, and then Luke inserts an explanation here, uh, an editorial explanation for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Uh, they're just intellectually promiscuous. They just run around with any new idea that comes up and they don't take any time to really get serious about anything. And that's what, what uh, characterized them. So those are the first... Uh, seven verses, or six verses. Then we have Paul's sermon, or Paul's response. He's basically what we've just learned is that as he was uh, talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and that's the key issue that is um, that has really uh, caused them much confusion because it violates their belief system. Uh, he says, um, 
they want to take him before the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is a place. It's Mars Hill. That's what Areopagus means uh, from the Greek Ares, which is a name for Mars, which so was known as Mars Hill. And on top of Mars Hill, they would convene a council of approximately 30 uh, leaders who would evaluate somebody's teaching. So there's the Council of the Areopagus, which meets on the, met on the top of the hill. Now, I was there about 10 years ago, and it's very difficult to get up on top of, of the Areopagus. There's been so many people up there over the years that it's all been worn rather smooth, and it is very slippery, extremely slippery. And I couldn't imagine a group being up there, but uh, I've talked to people who were there uh, 40 or 50 years ago, and it wasn't like that at all. So it, what is there today isn't quite the way it was then, and they had at one time uh, stone benches up there, and they would convene this council, and uh, they would have a, a discussion of these new ideas. So Paul is going to be asked to explain in more detail, what it is that he is teaching. So this is what we refer to as Paul's uh, sermon, uh, although it's not really a sermon per se. It's an explanation. He gives us an example of how he is reasoning uh, dialogizomai here. That's a word used many times in, in, uh, in Acts to describe how Paul or one of the other apostles or teachers is explaining the gospel. He's dialoguing, reasoning uh, with his audience, logically explaining what he is saying. See, religion, that is, the, the belief in God is not illogical. You'll hear that often when you talk to unbelievers. They'll say, well, well, I'm going to use logic. I'm not going to be religious and just use emotion. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people are just emotional. But, but Paul was intensely logical. It's just that uh, unbelievers and cynics don't like his first principles. Uh, their first principles are something that nobody discusses, but their first principle is there is no God in the story. Paul's first principle is you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There is a God, and he is not a God who is within creation, but he is outside of creation. So Paul is going to challenge the Athenians to worship the creator rather than the creature. And this is in verses 22 through 31. Now, the last four points there, those are the two major divisions, the introduction and then Paul's sermon. Paul's sermon has four points that can be broken down. His introduction, which is he's using this, this altar to the unknown God as a touchstone. He's not saying the unknown God is the God he's talking about. One of the reasons he's doing that is because Socrates was accused of introducing new ideas and new gods, and that brought uh, a death penalty, and he committed suicide, drank the hemlock. But for the Apostle Paul, he wants to just use the fact that they, just to cover all their bases, they would throw out one idol. And most Greek communities had several idols to unknown deities just in case they missed one. They didn't want to offend any god, so they would just have one or two or more that were to the unknown god. And so Paul just uses this because it shows that that they have this god consciousness that there is some sort of deity. He's, and we'll look at Romans 1 as a background for this 
uh, before we get very much uh, further along. So he, in verses 22 and 23, he says, uh, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that's in the midst of the, uh, the council there, and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. We'll look at that. That's a real play on words there because the root word that he uses, the Greek word, is uh, daimonion, the word for demon. So if there was a, a, a Jew in the audience listening to him, they would catch that there was a little tongue-in-cheek humor going on there uh, because of the word that he used. Uh, in all false teaching, all false religion has its source in Satan, in the demonic. And so he uses a word that means superstitious or religious, and um, and so he's, he's having a little fun with them even though they don't know it. Uh, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious as far as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim uh, to you. And so he is going to proclaim God to them using this as a, as a touchstone to the fact that it recognizes that, that they don't know everything there is to know about about gods. And the, the God that he defines, starting in verse 24, has this description of God in 24 to 29, is unlike any deity they ever imagined. And the reason is, is because in their philosophical religious systems, all of the gods and goddesses were so part of the same reality. There was no creator-creature distinction all the gods and goddesses are part of what has been called the scale of nature, scala natura, or the chain of being. And we're going to have to take a little bit of time to understand that because I don't think we can really understand what Paul is saying here if we don't, and what he, and how he is strategically approaching uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans if we don't understand something about what, what they believe and how that fits into this whole concept of the chain of being which was inherent within, um, within Greek thought. He says of God, verse 24, uh, God who made the world and everything in it, See, he immediately establishes that creator-creature distinction. He's not starting with some sort of uh, uh, neutral concept of God. You have an idea of God. I have an idea of God. Let's just work our way you know, logically to something. He says God is the one who made the world, and that's different from any deity that they ever heard of. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That is a great text for the divine institution number four, uh, number um, uh, number five on nations. And God determines their times, the rise and fall of nations, and their uh, territorial boundaries, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." 
Verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. And then the next two verses are his challenge to them. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And that immediately flies in the face of everything the Greeks believed. They, they, they were strongly opposed to any idea of physical bodily resurrection. And as soon as he said that, they immediately categorized Paul as somebody who is, who, who is just absolutely nuts, insane. It's impossible as far as they're concerned for there to be resurrection from the dead. So they immediately react to that, verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Now, this ought to give all of us great confidence, because here's the Apostle Paul giving one of the best uh, gospel presentations, and he's rejected by almost everybody who listens to him. Just because people don't listen to you and don't respond to your gospel presentation doesn't mean you haven't effectively and accurately given it. It has to do with their volition, and it doesn't, because you've given it clearly, God the Holy Spirit made it clear to them, they reject it on their own because of their own uh, hostility toward God. However, there are always going to be some who respond. Verse 34, however, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, uh, who was probably one of the men in the council of Areopagus of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris and others with him. So he just had a smaller response than at other times in his ministry. Okay, this sets us up for next time coming back, starting to ask those basic observation questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. That's how we start any Bible study is looking at those questions and finding out the answers. And so once we do that, because we have a lot of interesting things to get into in this passage, and we'll get into that starting next time. And I hope this sort of sets things up, uh, because this is a really great passage. Paul, every statement that Paul makes in this is a strategic move based on knowledge. He's not just uh, talking to talk. So we'll come back and look at these things next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon Paul's presentation of the gospel in Athens. We pray that you would help us to learn from this presentation, that we might have a a better understanding of how we too can use these same principles as we present the gospel to those around us. Because we know that there are many people around us who just don't have a clear understanding of the gospel And perhaps the reason there in our life is so that we have that privilege to communicate the gospel to them and God the Holy Spirit can use it to make the good news clear and they can come to faith in Christ Jesus as their Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to be bold and thoughtful and articulate in our understanding and presentation of the gospel for that is a prime responsibility you've given to each and every one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.